The rest of us are going to be in John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 47 uh, today. So um, you may want to look at it in your smartphone or your Bible. We'll have some of the scripture up here as well. Everyone has blind spots, right? I have blind spots. You have blind spots. And we all, we all actually have blind spots in each of our eyes. Um, there is a place where the optic nerve passes through a tiny hole in the retina, and it is a blind spot. Um, Everyone also seems to have psychological blind spots as well because our brains aren't wired for accurate self-evaluation. And it doesn't make any difference how smart you are. In fact, there is some evidence the smarter you are, you may have more blind spots. Um... There's a lot of things that um, influences our ability to make an accurate self-evaluation. Uh, our environment can, can influence. Um, there's, there's evidence that if you hold a cup of warm coffee, you are going to be more relational and easier to get along with, or something warm. Um, there's evidence that when you wear sunglasses, that that's a time you may be less likely to tell the truth. Um, our relationships influence our lack of objectivity. Our emotions influence our lack of objectivity. Uh, our energy level can influence our lack of objectivity for self-evaluation. Uh, our circumstances. For example, I may drive my car too fast on, a, on, on the way to a very important meeting, like church. And in my mind, I have a good reason. There's a good reason why I was late, and it's so important that I get there. So in my mind, this isn't really a problem that I'm driving maybe way too fast. But if I see someone else doing the same thing, driving way too fast down Claremont Avenue, I might be a little critical. Depends a lot on our situation and our circumstances. Um, when I drive in my car, I'm grateful that I have a rear view mirror and I have two side view mirrors, and they really help me see uh, vehicles that may be approaching from either side. Uh, they can also help me see something like a motorcycle or sometimes even a bicycle if I'm in a residential area. But all of the cars have blind spots. There, there is a place where that vehicle or bicycle can pass out of vision and you just can't see them unless they come further. And those are blind spots. Jesus said we also have spiritual blind spots. We all can have spiritual blind spots. In our passage today, Jesus encounters a highly intelligent group of religious leaders with spiritual blind spots. 
And our context today goes back and continues from last week. Let me just remind you. Um, John chapter 5, Jesus healed a man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. And the religious leaders got pretty upset about it because he broke the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath and you can't, you shouldn't be healing people on the Sabbath and you shouldn't ask them to carry a mat. And so they're pretty upset. And Jesus explained that his father uh, was working and had always been working and he too is working like his father. And it was God who healed this man on the Sabbath day, by the way. God doesn't stop everything for rest. He, he gave us an example of rest so that we would rest, but he continues to do good even on the Sabbath. But the religious leaders were infuriated, and Jesus called God his Father, and they understood Jesus thinks he's equal with God. And that has really infuriated them. And so in the passage we looked at last week, uh, we saw Jesus begin to defend himself. And this is the longest section in the Bible where Jesus tells us about who he is. And this is part two. So we looked at part one last week. And Jesus continues. Now, this is a, a difficult passage. It's an abstract passage, you know. So if your mind wanders, you're going to lose it on this one. Um, one of the things about when you teach through the Bible, when you teach through the Bible, you cover all the passages. Sometimes not every passage is your favorite one, and it'd be easy to preach. Through, I would. It'd be easy for me just to preach John with the passages that were my favorite. There would be a lot of them, but that's easy when you get it. Oh, this is a really. This is an easy one. This is a good one. There's a lot you can do with this one. This is one of those kind of straightforward, but it's well. You see, here we go. So Jesus is continuing uh, his defense of who he is, why he does what he's doing, that, that he's sent from God. He's defending that God the Father has sent him. And so in verses uh, 31 through, uh, in chapter 5, verses 31 through 40, uh, we have this witness verification process. Now, let me just read verses 31 uh, through 40. And uh, just as Jesus is speaking, if I testify about myself, my, testif my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his test testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy this light. I have testimony weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I'm doing testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. 
You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So that gets us started. This is the witness verification process. Now, verses 31, the nature, 31 and 32, the nature of the witness verification. Um, so Jesus is defending himself. He says, I testify about myself, but my t testimony is not true. What? What do you mean his testimony is not true? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Well, Jesus is not saying my testimony is false. He's saying my testimony will not hold up in a legal defense because one person is not enough, according to Jewish law, to make a defense. Um, there is another, Jesus says, verse 32, who testifies in my favor. And I know that this testimony about me is true. Well, who is the other, the other person? So John, the gospel writer, is writing, and he uses this Greek word for, it's actually the word is another, not other, another. And um, the word is alos, and it means another of the same kind. Now, he could have used the Greek word heteros, which means another of a different kind, but he used alas. And so Jesus saying there is another of the same kind, the same kind as me, has the same nature as me. And he's referring to the Father. The Father has also testified on behalf of Jesus. And we're going to see that a little bit more in just a minute. But when we think about the nature of the witness verification, uh, we have to go by what the scriptures, what, what was the, how did they do things in the first century? How did they do things under Old Testament law? And we come to uh, Deuteronomy uh, 19, verse 15. Um, and the scripture says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they, have, they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so this is like uh, the context. Um, every, everybody understood this, even though this maybe not how you want to do it or how we think today in America. Uh, but uh, so Jesus is just saying, I realize my testimony um, can't be counted on here. It's not adequate for, for, this, for this defense. But there is, he does have people, he does have support, he does have witness verification of uh, who he is. Next, Jesus identifies uh, the witness of John the Baptist in verses 33 through 35. And he says, uh, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. And this goes back to chapter one. We're going to look at that in just a minute. Um, the religious leaders went to John. Uh, John was out in the wilderness and he was preaching and he was saying, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he was announcing the king will be present. And he was preparing people's hearts. He was preparing the way 
for God, the Son of God. He was preparing the way for Jesus, and he was preaching, and people came to him, and they were baptized, and Jesus also came to him and was baptized. Verse 34, Jesus says, Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. Jesus desires that people know who he is, and he desires that these leaders understand who he is. And ultimately, his desire would be for them to be saved. He wants people to know that the Father sent the Son, the promised Messiah, and it is he. Verse 35, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. John was a fiery preacher. Um, he just called them as he saw them, and he did not hold back on the issues of sin and the need for humility and repentance and uh, turning to God from failed lifestyles. And John's ministry pointed to Jesus. Uh, he was a lamp and burned and gave light a light that shined on Jesus. Jesus was the light, and John pointed people to that light. And uh, at first, the Jewish audiences were, were fascinated by John. And a lot of people got their hearts right, and they listened, and they, they, they were ready. The, the point of John's ministry was to get people ready, to get people's hearts hungry and open so that when Jesus showed up, they knew it's him. That's the one John was talking about. And they were ready, and they, and, uh, they embraced Jesus. But people were fascinated by John's style and his boldness. But it didn't last too long. John would get arrested by Herod and put in jail. And then he will be executed. Um, remember John chapter 1? Let's go back to John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now let me just clarify this one more time. I know you know this, but this gets confusing for some people. John... Here's John the Baptist. The writer is also named John. They're not the same people. The writer is the Apostle John, who was also one of the 12 disciples. John the Baptist was not one of the 12 disciples, but this is John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to testify concerning that light. Next slide. So that through him all might believe. That was the point, was to prepare people. To be able to believe and to have faith. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Now, um, I want to go on and just read a little bit more out of that chapter. And you can just listen to this part. Because this really fits with what we're talking about here. John chapter 1. So remember how... John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is a prologue, and nearly all the rest of the book fits, comes out of that chapter, that part of the chapter. Now we come to verse 19. Now this was John's testimony, because that's what we're talking about, witness verification. This was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests, so they, Jesus said, you sent to John, they sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, but he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Don't get confused. 
They ask him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? No. Who's Elijah? Well, he was a prophet in the Old Testament. But at, when you come to the very last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi in chapter 3 and chapter 4, it says that there's going to be a prophet who comes, who prepares the way for the Lord, and he's going to be another Elijah. And so they're wondering, is John, are you Elijah? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Isaiah writes, eight centuries before Jesus, John knows he's the one that Isaiah refers to. John is that prophet, that, that spokesman for God that Isaiah refers to. I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you hasn't come forward yet. Stands, stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And so that's John. John understood his identity and his purpose as the spokesman for God. John understood that his, his life and his role were a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He understood he was to prepare um, the way for the Lord. He was not just a human witness. He was God's spokesman. In verses 36 through 38, we see the witness of the Father. So Jesus continues. So I, Jesus has just told us about John. John has been a witness. He is a valid witness that claims Jesus was sent by God. Jesus says, I have testimony weightier, weightier than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I'm doing testify that, that the Father has sent me. Remember from last time, Jesus was doing what the Father was doing. The man who was healed on the Sabbath day at the pool of Bethesda was healed by God. It was a work of the Father through the Son. God didn't take the Sabbath off to keep from helping people. Jesus was doing the works of God. These miracles were the works of God. Um, and these works, these miracles are a testimony. They are a witness. They are an authentication that Jesus has been sent by God. Verse 37, and the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he sent. So on one occasion, 
Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was baptized by John. And you may remember in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, after Jesus was baptized, a voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father gave, testified that this is his Son. He's well pleased. This is the one I sent. And these leaders don't get it. They may have heard about it. They didn't hear it. And they do not believe. But Isaiah the prophet spoke of this day 800 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 35. Um, Isaiah writes, in a time when, when God's people were struggling, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come, and he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And just stop right there a second. So in Isaiah 35, there is a prophecy about the Messiah to come, the promised one. Um, and this is what first century people were looking for. They were looking for God to come with vengeance, divine uh, retribution, and to save them. I don't think they were thinking about being saved eternally from their sin. They wanted to be saved from their enemies. Just like Moses led them out of Egypt and they were saved from the Egyptians. And God's people want this. They want God to deliver them from the Romans. And that's their focus. But when Jesus came, he didn't come to do this, did he? He will come to do this at the second coming. But that's not what he came for in the first coming. Now, we like things in chronological order because that's the way we think in the West. That's not necessarily the way they thought in ancient Near Eastern culture. For example, I have a Hebrew Bible in my office. It's got a lot of dust on it. But to go to the book of Genesis, you go to the back. And not only that, when you start reading, you read right to left. Then you turn the page and you go right to left. When you get to the end, we would say, well, that's where the beginning should be. But that's not how they did it. And so here we have the second coming first. Now let's go to the next slide. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. People who are blind will be able to see. And the ears of the deaf unstop. Some people who have been deaf will be able to hear. Then the lame will leap like a deer. We see that in the New Testament in the Gospels where people who couldn't walk were able to get up and leap. And the mute tongue shout for joy. Somebody who couldn't speak will be able to speak and shout for joy. And so Jesus told John the Baptist this was a sign that he was the one. This was um, 
assigned to God's people, Israel. You should have been an attention getter. Pay attention. This is a messenger from God. And um, God has sent this person. And then we go on with verses 39 through 40, the witness of Scripture. And by the witness of Scripture, we're talking about the Old Testament. We're talking about the book of Genesis all the way through Malachi, 39 books of the Old Testament. Jesus says in verse 39, You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, studying the Bible is great. Studying the Scriptures is great. You know, it was a good thing to study the Old Testament the way, the way they did in many ways. The, the Jewish religious leaders had, a, had a, a serious reputation for their deep study of the Word of God, especially the scribes and the Pharisees. The problem is, these religious leaders got sidetracked. They ran off the rails. They ended up coming to a conclusion that merely by studying the Old Testament and gaining this knowledge, they had eternal life. You just study and you have eternal life. You just embrace this and you have eternal life. And um, they believed that if you didn't study, those people who didn't study Torah, the law, the Old Testament scriptures, they were cursed by God. And so one of the things that happens here is there's this great pride that develops among the religious leaders um, that, uh, you know, they're kind of loved by God more than other people because they study the scriptures so much. Um, they have this pride in their intellectual pursuit of knowledge. They developed the head, but they didn't develop the heart. They didn't connect with God. Um, and the danger here, and this can happen now in uh, the world of Christianity where people get so excited about the Bible that they forget about their relationship with God. And it's possible for people to study the Bible their entire lives and not have a relationship with God. Or it's possible for a Christian to get sidetracked. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Um, Jesus' point here is they love to study the scriptures so much, and they love to talk about the rules and how to keep the rules and even make up more rules to help them keep the rules and, and to protect themselves from violating one of the rules. They get so excited about that. They miss God. How silly is that? That's, that's Jesus' point. They have the scriptures, the very scriptures that testify about God's son. And yet they're not connecting with Jesus Christ who stands right before their very eyes. They can't tell. There's no connection with God's word here. Now, these very scriptures that testify about Jesus, Moses their hero, 1,500 years earlier, wrote about 
the son. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God, this, so think about that. This is Moses writing this down about 1,500 years before Jesus, in the 15th century before Jesus. And he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So Moses is saying the prophet's going to be like him. What kind of prophet was Moses? Moses was a big dog prophet. You know, he wasn't just a prophet of God. There were a lot of prophets. There were minor prophets and major prophets. Moses was, was the most important leader in the Old Testament. At, at, at least for sure, these guys know that. They think that. Moses spoke for God. Moses gave them the law. He was a law giver. And Moses delivered them out of Egypt, out of Pharaoh's hand. He was a deliverer. He was an important guy. And they almost worshipped him. They wouldn't say they did. And um, next, next slide. He said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. So God is now saying to Moses, Moses, I'm going to raise up for them, for, for God's people, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their fellow Israelites. So he's going to be an Israelite. He's going to be a Jewish man. And I will put my words in his mouth. Next slide. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. Now, there's going to be a prophet like Moses, but one more important, one bigger than Moses, one more significant, such that when he speaks, he speaks what God wants, and, when, and if anyone does not uh, follow what he says, God, the Father, will hold him accountable. So, Jesus' claim to be sent from the Father, that's what this is about. John would, the Baptist was sent as a witness, as God's spokesman to be a witness for Jesus. The Father himself demonstrated that he had sent his Son by the very works that Jesus did, the very works of God, by the miracles. The Father gave a verbal witness, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. This is my Son the one with whom I'm well pleased. The Old Testament scriptures gave witness to the person of God's Son in many places. Um, over 300 places in the Old Testament make a reference to the Messiah. Yet the religious leaders of Israel have hard hearts. They would not accept these truths. Now we come to this very last section in verses 41 through 47. Jesus rebukes them for their failure to believe. Verse 41 through 47, the failure to believe the truth. He starts with a lack of repentance. That's what he would expect, repentance, a change, a response. Uh, don't go this way anymore, but go this way now. Verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you, that I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. This is a very sharp rebuke. This strikes at the center of the Jewish religion, the heart of the Old Testament. You do not have the love of God in your hearts. 
Oh, by the way, that's a really good application question. Do you have the love of God in your hearts? You know the answer to that. Do you have the love of God in your hearts? Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Moses gave this command, love the Lord your God, this is to all of Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is about having God central, having God first, highest place, commitment. It's about follow through. It includes obedience, loving the Lord with our total being. That was the greatest command of the Old Testament. All of the religious leaders understood this. And Jesus is saying, you don't have the love of God in your heart. Now, Jesus affirmed this in Matthew chapter 22. This is the greatest commandment. It's the greatest commandment for us. It is the most important thing, is having Jesus at the center of our lives, first above all. John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus continues, I have, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me, but if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. If they had truly accepted God's word, their hearts would be in tune with Jesus. They would be on the same wavelength with God. God has been sending out all kinds of messages about his son, and they're not getting any of them. They're refusing what God's word says. It's because they don't have that spiritual connection. They're just going through the religious motions, doing the things without heart, uh, focusing on how smart they are. The smarter they are, the more we can give you praise. The smarter you are, the more you know about the Bible, you, God probably loves you more. And they got things really twisted. Um... Verse 44, how can you believe since you, you accept glory from one another? You know, they, they accept praise and honor. That's what, the, when they get together, that's what their focus is all about. Um, they do not seek the, the honor, the glory that comes from only God. They're not being affirmed by God. They're just affirming one another. Verses 45 through 47, a lack of understanding. Jesus continues, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. I don't need to do that, he's saying. Your accuser is Moses, your hero, whom your hopes are set. In referring to Moses, he's speaking the law of the Old Testament. That's what the law does, by the way. That's what all those rules do, is they just identify sin. They don't save anybody. They identify sin. They point to our flaws and our failures. And um, Moses, the scriptures themselves of the Old Testament, uh, accuse these religious leaders of their hard hearts, of their missing the most important thing. They are students of Moses, students of God's law, yet they've missed the most important thing. They are smart religious leaders with huge spirits.
spiritual blind spots. They have the scriptures. They cannot see what God is doing. That's a terrible place to be, and it happens all the time where people have scriptures, they have the Bible, and yet they've not connected their hearts with it. Verse 46, if you believe Moses, if you would have, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Now, intellectually, they'd say, yeah, we believe what Moses wrote. Um, but they, they don't know Moses' God. They have intellectual knowledge without heart knowledge. They can know about the Bible without embracing the God of the Bible. Sometimes we call this bibliolatry, where we put the Bible as the highest. And they've got the, they got the Old Testament, and knowing the Old Testament as the highest without God. Now, when Jesus came to this earth, and that's what this whole passage has been about, God provided a witness, a testimony. You know, what a witness does is just tell the truth about what you know. Now, God has also provided that witness today. And that includes you and me. Acts uh, chapter 1. This is God's strategy. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. These are the words of Jesus again. This is after uh, his resurrection, just before he ascended into heaven. He says to his followers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Now, this is like a command and a prophecy as well. You will be my witness. The Holy Spirit hadn't come on them yet. Happens in Acts chapter 2. And the Holy Spirit comes on the church for the first time to live in and dwell the, the people of the church, empower them to serve Christ. And so that happens in Acts chapter 2, and it's been happening ever since Acts chapter 2 into this very day. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where we started all this. And in Judea, it's going to expand outward. And in Samaria, those places you really don't like to go, and to the ends of the earth. And that's our mission to go into all the world and make disciples. Starts here. Jerusalem was their home. That's where it got started. This is our home. This is where we start. And then we expand out. We've got people who go out to Judea and to Samaria, and we're sending people to the ends of the earth. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But you have a place right now to be a witness, to tell the truth about what you know. To tell others, you don't have to be, you don't have to have all the answers to the Bible. All the answers to every question that people ask. You just need to be able to tell people what you know. What do you know? How do you have a relationship with Jesus? How did you start a relationship with Jesus? How has God worked in your life? That's what a witness does. Just tell them what you know. My question for you is, who does God want you to tell this week? Just to share what you know. You can't share what you don't know. Just share what you do know. That's what a witness does. Um, we all have blind spots. Jesus recognized that people are just prone to blind spots, especially the way we relate to each other. Um, what do you think your blind spots are? 
Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Blind spot. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly and remove the speck from your brother's eye. Um, it's just so easy to see other people's blind spots. I know I'm an expert. <laughs> I can just identify. I love to identify uh, the blind spots of my kids, you know. They just love to come and ask me, Dad, what are my blind spots? <laughs> um, if you are married, you have a blind spot analyst, maybe even next to you. And actually, that's really good. That's really good. But what are your blind spots? Who can tell you about your blind spots? Because you don't know all your blind spots. Now, the great thing about marriage is, now I confess that early in our years, when Sue brought up a blind spot, I found that a reason to be defensive and to prove that she was wrong. And, um, but through the years, uh, I've gained some insight and maybe grown a little bit. And today I know that Sue wants my best. She does know my blind spots. And she is able to identify them for me. And I can learn a lot when I listen to her. I'm not always comfortable, but I can learn a lot when I listen to her. Who can you talk to? Can you talk to your mate? Do you feel safe? Do you have a friend that you feel safe with? A mentor that you feel safe with? Sometimes even a counselor that you might feel safe with to help you with your blind spots. Today we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to remember the death of Jesus. Uh, it is so central. That's one, that's one of those areas that's easy to have a blind spot. You just go through the religious motions without the heart, without significantly, seriously evaluating your life before God, just being honest with God. Scripture says that we should examine our lives. You know, is there sin that we need to confess? We, just, we need to do this. This isn't just a religious activity to go through the motions because that's what churches do. This is a time to be, as a church, this is the one time, you know, you can do this every day at home, but this is the one time God says, church, we're going to do it together. We're going to corporately do this and we're going to walk out of here clean. That's God's plan. And uh, we're going to celebrate uh, today and we do that. Uh, there are two stations up here. This is what we're doing for communion. We started this with COVID. Uh, this has the juice, and, and there's, there's two sections, a top section, and you pull off carefully. Uh, there's, a, there's a little wafer in there for the bread. The bread represents the body of Jesus Christ, and the juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ. It's about his death on our behalf. He paid for our sins. He paid for all of our sins. And by faith in Christ, we are forgiven. And so today, we're reminded. Today, we should be humble before God to remember we are sinners who are saved by grace because of Jesus. And we live our lives in response to that. So let's bow our hearts together. And um, 
just come before God and just, uh, just take some silence before him and reflect. Maybe you know some blind spots that you need to deal with. Maybe you need to talk even to your spouse. What areas in your life do you know that uh, have been, you've fallen short in your relationship with God? You failed God. It's called sin. Could be in your behavior, your actions, your thought life, your words. Just talk to God. Be honest. Let him point things out. And We have this great promise in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. And when we are honest and we confess... The slate is wiped clean in our relationship. So, God, we're so grateful for forgiveness. We're so grateful that um, when we fall down, you, you help us get right back up. And, God, we... Um, we just want to thank you now for the bread that represents the body of Jesus that was nailed to the cross, for the cup that represents the blood of Jesus was poured out in our behalf, and that his life was a total and absolute payment for us, for our sin. He took our place. He was our substitute. We deserved that death, and he took it for us. And now we have forgiveness. We don't deserve it. Thank you, God. Thank you for the bread, and thank you for the cup. In Jesus' name, amen.